and welcome to Haaretz Weekend, your glossy audio guide to Israel, the Middle East and the Jewish world. I'm Simon Spungin. On today's show... We have a doubleheader for you this week, listener. Coming up soon, I'll be chatting to Judy Maltz about the tortuous process of finding a new leader for the Jewish Agency, with no fewer than nine candidates, none of them backed by the government, reportedly in the running. First, though, I'm delighted to welcome Stockholm-based journalist David Stavrou. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. Thank you, thank you. So uh, last week you were in Malmo for the International Forum on Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Antisemitism. Uh, Why Sweden, David? Why Malmo? Um, Well, because the conference itself, the Malmo Forum, uh, was actually meant to take place 20 years after the original Stockholm Forum, uh, which took place in the year 2000. Uh, They had to wait a year of it because of the the pandemic, but uh, it took place in Sweden originally, and this is uh, like the second part of it, even though there was quite a lot going on in between as well. So originally, the Forum uh, for Combating Antisemitism and Holocaust Remembrance is a Swedish initiative. This started about 20 years ago uh, when Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Joran Pashon discovered that there's a lot of neo-Nazis in Sweden and the kids in schools don't know much about the Holocaust. And then he decided to go on this great big initiative, which ended up to be the Stockholm Forum of 2000 with uh, academics and politicians and leaders of the Jewish world and of the world in general who came to Stockholm for the original conference. And this one is 20 years later. The original one led to uh, the founding of uh, what is now known as the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IRA. And so it's also got to do with that. So Sweden is the one who started this originally, and that's why it came back to Sweden for this conference. Mm. Is is it ironic or deliberate that Sweden is uh, hosting this conference and hosted the conference 20 years ago, given that whenever there is a flare-up in, in the Middle East, there is an exponential flare-up in violence towards Jews in in Sweden? Well, I don't know if it's ironic, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's part of the problem. Originally, uh, 20 years ago and now, uh, Sweden has a problem with anti-Semitism, uh, just like uh, any other country. I wouldn't say it's worse than uh, other European countries. Mm. Some are worse, some are a bit better, but we uh, all European countries have anti-Semitism. I think what's unique about the Swedes is that they really intended to, and still in many ways intend to, do something about it. And the way the Swedes do it is kind of a big international event and lots of other people coming to Sweden to talk about it and discuss it and also to make uh, uh, concrete uh, suggestions about how to take care of it. Historically, of course, Sweden and specifically Malmö has a significant role in both anti-Semitism and in the Holocaust remembrance because, remember, Malmö was a place where all the Jews from Denmark arrived after fleeing Denmark in, during World War II in 1943. So they were accepted as refugees in Sweden. Uh, and that's also where the white buses of the Swedish Red Cross brought the Holocaust survivors or camp survivors to Scandinavia in 1945. On the other hand, Sweden has a very ambivalent role when it comes to the Holocaust and the Jews because Sweden cooperated with the Nazis and supplied the Nazis with iron ore for their military industry mm. and uh, and also wasn't very generous originally in accepting uh, refugees from Germany and other European countries. Of course, that all changed 
during the war. So Sweden has a kind of uh, ambivalent legacy when it comes to the Holocaust. And um, to these days as well, Sweden has a serious anti-Semitism problem. And this is part of what it's trying to do against it. Mm. And we we even saw part of that anti-Semitism problem during the the Malmo Forum when a far-right group, the Nordic Resistance League, I believe they're called, projected the words the Holocaust was a scam onto the city's main synagogue. And as we mentioned, there's also a history of violence against Jews in the city against the background of the uh, Israel-Palestinian conflict. That's very true. And I think today, as opposed to a few years ago, it's well known and also discussed. The Swedish discourse, I think, has uh, changed during the last few years. And today, everybody knows that in Sweden, again, like most other European countries, has various kinds of anti-Semitism. So you have your basic, you know, old school European anti-Semitism, mm. which is still there, although obviously it's not socially acceptable in most circles these days, but it's still there in many ways. And then there's a um, anti-Semitism, which you just uh, talked about, that's right wing, you know, anything from the populist right wing to the far right neo-Nazis, uh, like the Nordic Resistance Front that you mentioned. And you have some kind of anti-Semitism on the left as well. And that's kind of a gray zone. And, you know, this has been discussed in many places, what's between anti-Semitism and just uh, legitimate objections or uh, to uh, Israel's policies here mm. and there. So there's that as well. But of course, in recent years, I think what, at least in Malmö, is the main problem, and that's realized now by almost everyone, is the imported anti-Semitism, which comes from the Middle East or North Africa, uh, from people who grew up with anti-Semitism in the school curriculum, and that's uh, Islamist anti-Semitism and uh, all kinds of uh, imported anti-Semitism, like I said. So those four kinds all existed in the recent parts, and you know, so at some point that became worse, and at uh, some point another became worse. Now, I think the the important anti-Semitism from the Middle East is the most serious problem. Although the far right, just like you mentioned, still does exist, and I must say it's more dangerous because it perhaps happens less. But when there's a violent attacks or terrorist attacks in Scandinavia, a lot of times it's not Islamist jihadist groups. A lot of times it's right wing extremists, or mm. at least both groups. Mm. On the diplomatic front, uh, David, relations have, have been rocky uh, between Israel and Sweden since Sweden became the first large European country to recognize Palestinian statehood in, in 2014. Uh, the visit to Israel this week by Sweden's foreign minister, is that part of ongoing efforts to mend ties? Yeah, the visit by uh, Anne Linda, the foreign minister, is definitely a gigantic step, I think, both for Israel and for Sweden. Each of those countries, I think, with, with their own specific political reasons as well. But you're right, the, the relationships have been very rocky since 2014, when uh, Stefan Löfven, our current uh, Swedish prime minister, and his then foreign minister, Margot Wallström, recognized the state of Palestine. But now it seems to be going back to normal. Uh, I must say that during those years, it wasn't that the ties didn't exist. In many France, relations between Sweden and Israel were still very good when it comes to academia and business and science and art and culture. Sweden and Israel always had a good relation and still did have. On the diplomatic front, it's true it was uh, kind of rocky during the last few years, and now that's at least supposed to be mended. I must say that I spoke to someone uh, quite high up in the prime minister's office, and that person told me but the Malmö Forum combating uh, anti-Semitism and mm. Holocaust remembrance shouldn't be seen as part of the same thing as mending relations with Israel. In fact, 
it's two different things. Of course, they're connected in a way because Israel is an important part of combating anti-Semitism and Holocaust remembrance. But the forum specifically is a personal commitment by Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Löfven to Holocaust survivors and to Jewish communities, uh, both in uh, Sweden and worldwide. It's not a part of amending the relations with Israel, although obviously there is a connection. Mm, I mean that that kind of brings us on to the to the elephant in the room, should we say? Mm. I mean the document on which the entire forum's work is based, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism, is somewhat controversial, right? Yes, um, certainly, and and it's a big elephant in the room when you talk about the international discourse, both in the Jewish world and outside the Jewish world. But actually, in this case, Sweden stands behind that working definition. Although you would think that uh, as Sweden was also on the front of, you know, being pro-Palestine in many mm-hmm. ways and encouraging a Palestinian state and two-state solution, you would think that wouldn't be the case. But actually, Sweden is quite conservative, you know, a lot of public relations. But really, in the bottom line, Sweden is not only behind the international uh, the IHRA definition. It's also, like I said, the country that stands behind the whole organization that founded the whole thing from the first place. Of course, the um, definition itself is very controversial when it comes to people on the left in Sweden. And I would say also Jews on the left to say that it has to be uh, realized that not every time you object to something the Israeli government does is anti-Semitic. Um, mm. and, I, mean, I, I wonder whether, according to the um, to the IHRA definition, a, a statement by you know former Foreign Minister Margot Wallström, um, a, a, as you mentioned her earlier on, she called for a, investigations into a, a extrajudicial killings of Palestinians yes. and appeared to link radicalization amongst Muslims to the Palestinian struggle. So would she now be considered an anti-Semite by uh, the the Swedish-approved definition of anti-Semitism? That's a very good question. Of course, there isn't a court to make that decision, but I must say that Margot Wallström just recently went out of her way to say that she is not now and never has been an anti-Semite. All she wants is just a two-state solution, and she's not anti-Israel and not anti-Jewish and so on and so on. If you want to believe her, if you want to take her word as it is, that's, you know, that's up to anyone listening. That's not up to me to say. Obviously, she claims she's as far from anti-Semitism as can be. Uh, but there is a point in what you say. Some people may see exactly that kind of a comment as a kind of a hidden anti-Semitic claim. Mm. including perhaps the IHRA uh, definition. Mm, I mean, it does seem to incorporate, you know, Natan Sharansky's famous three Ds of anti-Semitism, delegitimization of Israel, demonization of Israel, and subjecting Israel to double standards. So um, it, it, it does seem to be a valid question whether retroactively uh, she, she would be branded uh, an, an anti-Semite. Uh, tell me, was, was that issue raised at all at the, uh, at the forum, or was it, uh, did it aspire to be apolitical as, as far as possible? The, the question and the issue in general was raised in the forum. You have to remember the forum itself, when you talk about the event, was made out of speeches, and a lot of people said a lot of things on a variety of subjects, including, by the way, Professor Yuda Bauer, a well-known Israeli Holocaust historian who's now 95 years old, and he spoke exactly about the point of uh, 
how uh, unique the Holocaust was and how it uh, could happen again, but how there was nothing quite like it and so on and so on. So there's those kind of historical issues. And there was also discussions about the relations to Israel and how that can or can't be seen as anti-Semitism. But I must say the focus of this particular forum, the one in Malmö this year, mm. as opposed maybe to other conferences, was that it was very action orientated. That means that each delegation had to bring pledges as to what they can actually do, not what they say or think or claim, but what they can actually do to combat anti-Semitism. And that means that a lot of the debate was about, you know, funding um, educational activities and Holocaust museums and memorial sites and legislation against organized racism and uh, school programs and things like that. So it wasn't so much about the definitions and things like that. It was more about what we're going to do in reality. So each country came with their own pledges about how they can fight uh, or combat anti-Semitism. Mm, well, at, at the risk of sounding cynical, David, what are they going to do? <laughs> well, um... I'm, I'm especially thinking here about the, you know, the social media companies, um, given right. the platitudes that we've heard from them over the years, uh, despite their role uh, in spreading right. and or tackling anti-Semitism. You know, right. were, were, were the social media companies represented in Malmo and did we hear anything new? Yes. I mean, a couple of them were represented in Malmo. TikTok was there. I think Facebook was there. And you're cynical for a reason. I mean, when it comes to states, I actually think that there is a reason to believe that at least a few of the states will do something because um, basically it's in their best interest to do so. Nobody, uh, at least not European countries, want to be seen as, you know, as countries with a serious anti-Semitism problem. And uh, and you know, founding a museum or doing a, a you know a legislation against anti-Semitism or against racism and and um, you know founding memorial sites and funding education things like that you know it doesn't cost much and I think uh, everybody wants to show that they're good on that front. Mm. When it comes to social media, I must say I mean I'm not an expert, but from what everybody hears and sees, it kind of uh, the business model itself is built on uh, traffic and on <laughs> on spreading messages which are not only love and peace and understanding. Uh, so although pledges have been made and they promise to put more funding into uh, combating anti-Semitism on their platforms uh, and funding more of that, to think that that will actually happen is, um, well, I don't, I don't really know. Um, some people who are experts uh, on, the, <laughs> on this particular front uh, seem very sceptic, I must say. Mm, I, I think a, a healthy dose of uh, of scepticism is, is, is called no for doubt. under these circumstances. No uh, David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simon. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listener, stay with us. After the jingle, we'll be chatting to Judy Maltz about the shenanigans at the Jewish Agency. Judy, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And so, listen, I had hoped that we could use this opportunity to chat about the final candidates for the head of the Jewish agency. Uh, but as you reported this week, that the whole process has been put on hold. Why is that? Why is that? Well, first of all, there are final candidates right now. The idea was that by the end of next week, they would have chosen one of them. And they're not going to be able to do that because a week and a half ago, I think it was, 
the guy who was considered the front runner in the race, or at least one of the leading candidates, Elazar Stern. He is currently serving as Israel's Minister of Intelligence. Uh, he was the candidate put forward by Yair Lapid, who is the head of Yeshatid and Israel's foreign minister, with the blessing of Naftali Bennett. In essence, he was the, really the only government endorsed of the nine candidates. But then he gave an interview, uh, a radio interview, that caused quite a public uproar here in Israel. Mm. Because in that interview, what this leading candidate for the position of, I guess we might call it king of the Jews, hmm. right? What he said was that in a previous job of his in the army, he had been the head of the manpower division of the army. He would habitually shred anonymous complaints from women about sexual harassment. He said Late. that? He admitted that in, on, he said in public, that. on the radio? He said that on the radio. He later said, that's not exactly what I meant. It was taken out of context. I would never have done such a thing. I wasn't referring to complaints by women, but by all sorts of other people, complaints about corruption. Doesn't matter. Nobody believed him at that point. And about two days later, he was pretty much forced to announce his withdrawal from the race. Mm. Which but, left eight candidates. But not, not his resignation as intelligence minister, I take it. No. Right now, he's still staying on as intelligence minister, mm. which is a pretty meaningless job, but we won't go into that now. So they were left with eight candidates. Here's the problem. All eight of them, in some way or another, are either members of Likud or very much affiliated with Likud or with a very right-wing agenda, such as the settler movement. And as you know, the Likud is not in power anymore in this country. To make things even more problematic, three of the four so-called national institutions, and those are the Jewish Agency, Karen Hayasod, which is the big fundraising organization, Karen Kayemet, which is the Jewish National Fund and owns lots of land in Israel, and the West Bank, and uh, the World Zionist Organization, three of the four, are in the hands of either Likud or other right-wing parties and movements. So the government, which is in a way a center-left government, even though it is headed by Bennett, but mm. as I said before, Stern is from the centrist Yeshatid party, and he was put forward initially by Lapid, that leaves the Jewish agency, unless another uh, candidate is put forward, that leaves the Jewish agency as well in the hands of the right or the opposition. And even Lapid, who never showed much interest in the Jewish agency or any of these national institutions before, start to realize that could be a problem. Mm. So, so is the government now scrambling to find uh, a, an alternate candidate that would represent it on uh, as head of the Jewish agency? Yes, it is. It simply didn't have enough time before because of the deadline that had been set. What, what was this deadline? It's kind of an artificial deadline. The Jewish Agency Board of Governors meets three times a year, it's supposed to meet at the end of October next week. Mm. 
And the idea was that since Bougie Herzog uh, left the job of Jewish Agency Chairman in June, and he's since been serving as President of Israel, that they would find someone to finally replace him in October. So that's not going to happen now. The next time the Board of Governors meets is in February. The feeling is that there will probably be a decision before then. We won't have to wait to February to know who the next head of the Jewish Agency is. Who are the candidates? So who are the candidates? Okay, we've got eight candidates. One of them is Danny Danone. He is the head of World Likud and a former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. So he's a definite Likudnik. Another one is Uzi Dayan, also a member mm. of uh, Likud, a form, former army general. Apparently, Netanyahu has really, really been pushing his candidacy. Irena Nevzalin is considered one of the leading candidates. She might not be very well known outside the country, but in recent years, she's kind of made a name for herself in Israel, mainly as the chair of the newly revamped Museum of the Jewish People, once mm. known as the Diaspora Museum. Mm. And, and she, she's also married to Likud M.K. Yuli Edelstein, of course, who's exactly. just That's a leadership what... challenge against Netanyahu. Right. And that's what I meant before when I said that these candidates are either actual Likudniks mm -hmm. or have a strong connection to Likud. So I would say that is a strong connection to Likud. The other candidates are Flor Hassan Nahum. She's an interesting woman. She's uh, the daughter of the former prime minister of Gibraltar, also a Likudnik and deputy mayor of Jerusalem. Mm. And we have Michal Kotler-Wonsch. She is a former MK. She was in the Knesset for a very, very short time. Originally, she came in with the Telem faction, which had been Boogie uh, Yalon's party. Mm -hmm. She's considered quite right-wing in her views. After the last government was formed, though, she defected from Telem and joined Kaholavan, Blue and White, Benny Gantz's party, in order to become part of the coalition. Her father is quite famous, actually, as well. Her, her father is Erwin uh, Cutler, former uh, Attorney General mm. uh, of Canada. We also have Omer Yankelevich, a former Minister of, of Diaspora Affairs, the only ultra-Orthodox woman to ever serve in a cabinet position mm. in Israel. Mm. She was also a member from of Blue, uh, White. Blue and White. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, although she is not very well liked in the center left camp, because while she was minister, it emerged something that she had managed to keep out of the public eye while she was campaigning, that she is uh, quite close to the settler movement and actually very, very right wing in her political views. Mm. Uh, for whatever uh, reason, Benny Gantz has really been very strongly pushing her candidacy. How many have I said, Simon? Did I finish all eight? I, um, I've lost I, count. I don't <laughs> th uh, there are so many. It, it, it feels like a little bit like a mix between Israel's Got Talent and the uh, Squid Game, this uh, this whole process. Uh, did we mention uh, Michael oh, Oren? Wait, hold on. No, uh, we didn't. Okay. We did not mention Michael Oren. Michael Oren, the uh, former Israeli ambassador to Washington, and uh, he was 
also for a very short period uh, in politics as a member of the center-right Kulanu party. Mm. And, and in journalism, we should mention. Yeah, he and did former, uh, work for, for a while as a, a translator former, at Haaretz. There you that go. Is true. There you go. Due disclosure. Um, <laughs> and I think the only candidate that we haven't mentioned is probably the least known, Yaffa Zilberschatz. That's right. Yaffa Zilberschatz is a professor of law from Bar Ilan University. She uh, used to head the Planning and Budget Committee of the Council for Higher Education, and she was appointed to that committee uh, by Naftali Bennett, current prime minister, when he was education minister. So she's considered close to Bennett, and Mm. she is also, like Bennett, modern orthodox. So many people say that actually this might have helped her chances because of her relationship with Bennett, this might help her get pushed forward in the next round. Mm. In the meantime, there were rumors that that the government or that Lapid would try and get Tsipi Livni to throw her hat into the ring. That is true. Tsipi Livni is probably the most accomplished woman in Israeli politics. Uh, but since she left politics a couple of years ago, she hasn't really been doing much, although she is expected to soon take over as chairwoman of the board of the government company that is building uh, the Tel Aviv metro system. Mm. She has not yet said anything about this. I did ask her, no comment. Uh, That doesn't mean anything. Uh, She's a very strong candidate. She's very well known. She's got tons of experience. Some people say, well, what connection does she have to the Jewish agency? She's really never dealt with this type of stuff, but that's not true, actually. She did serve as Israel's, among her other cabinet posts, she was Minister of Aliyah and Integration. So that Mm. is something going in her favor. Mm. There are plenty of uh, female candidates this time, and there were reports that the the, the committee making the decision actively wants to appoint a female chairperson for the Jewish agency. So queen of the Jews this time? It could very well be, yeah. Mm. Judy, why is this important at all? What The, the Jewish agency, there was a, an editorial a few days uh, ago in Haaretz arguing for the abolition of the Jewish agency along with the three other national institutions. It, it, why is this job still important? Is it still important? You know what? I don't, I don't know how to answer that question, Simon. It's, it's kind of funny in a way. I was talking to one of my colleagues this week that to even have the Jewish agency and breaking news, because it was breaking news when Mm -hmm. Elazar stepped out and they decided to delay the whole selection process. That that was breaking news. That was pushed by all the media. Mm. And it's kind of funny because who really cares about the Jewish agency anymore? And I mean, I think there's, there's a consensus that we don't really need this institution anymore. As the Haaretz editorial said, a lot of people often ask me, what does the Jewish agency do? Because it's not really clear. I mean, the Jewish agency was founded before there was a state. It Mm. kind of acted as a government before there was actually a state. So really, it should have been done away with in 1948 when we had a state and we had government ministries and the state itself could handle things like Aliyah, which is what the Jewish agency mainly does. And it doesn't even do that anymore. I mean, so much of the Aliyah work is outsourced. 
most of our Aliyah in the past 20, 30 years comes from the former Soviet Union. And that is handled by an organization called Nativ. The Jewish mm -hmm. agency isn't even involved there. Aliyah from North America is handled by an organization called Nefesh Benefesh. So what does the Jewish agency handle? Aliyah from France, rest of Europe, Australia, mm -hmm. South America. And what does it actually do? Basically, all it really does when it comes to Aliyah is if a person wants to make Aliyah, they have to fill out some forms to make sure they are eligible. And then the Jewish agency gives the final stamp of approval. It either says this person is eligible under the law of return or this person is ineligible. Now, honestly, that is something that we have a ministry of Aliyah. We have a ministry of interior. Maybe it's the job of the foreign ministry. But do we still need this very huge organization to do that sort of paperwork? It's a good question. Now, when Sharansky was head of the Jewish agency, he reached the conclusion that maybe it needs to redefine itself. And since Aliyah is not really a huge issue anymore, he tried to turn the Jewish agency into this sort of bridge between Israel and the diaspora. Mm. And he sent lots of shlichim all over the world, not Shlichim, the old-fashioned type of shlichim that used to go around and try to get people to make aliyah, his shlichim were sent to college campuses, and their main job was to kind of engage Jewish students who were not very affiliated, get them to understand what Israel was about, what Judaism about, but wasn't the classic, you know, come on aliyah. After Sharansky left and Buzi Herzog took over, he also wanted to make his mark on his organization. So he wasn't going to do exactly what Sharansky did. So he came up with another idea. The Jewish agency would be the organization that runs the whole global struggle against anti-Semitism. Mm. Yeah, he didn't stay that long. It never really happened that the Jewish agency became the main leading organization in the fight against anti-Semitism. So I'm not really sure what there is left for it to do. Mm. So, Judy, bottom line, would you agree that the chair of the Jewish agency now is just a sinecure for has-been or former politicians? Well, you might have said that until Uji Herzog appeared on the scene. But I think actually the fact that we have so many candidates today, it's really unheard of that you would have nine mm. candidates. Usually there were one or two, maybe three, but nine. So what happened here? I'm thinking maybe they're looking at Herzog and saying, hold on, this could be the pathway to becoming the next president of Israel. Mm. Mm. The, the, the Herzog path. Yes, Mm. Well, I mean, and there are um, relatively young candidates in contention this time. Right, right. Mm. Who's uh, who's your money on, Judy? I really don't know. I really don't know. Well, let's see who the who the candidate Lapid and Bennett are going to come up with. Then, once we know that, then we can see what the odds are. Judy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care, listener. That's your show for this week. Please remember to tune in to Haaretz Weekly with Emil Tibon on Monday, and we'll be back next Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until then, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>